Welcome back to 90 Days New. Today, we are venturing into the book of Ephesians in our New Testament reading plan, and we are getting very close to the halfway point. And so I hope you've been consistent up to this point and have maintained a regular reading schedule. Uh, And if not, there's plenty of time to catch up, and there's plenty of time just to get started uh, where we are and to keep pace with the rest of the church as we move through this reading plan together. Uh, But today we are looking into one of my favorite books of the New Testament. And uh, as we said in the book of Romans, um, the book of Romans has some really deep theology and many consider Romans 8 to be the epicenter of the Bible and the New Testament as it's so um, loaded with theological content. Uh, But I would have to say that a close second to that would be Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and uh, a lot of theological truths are packed into a very small book. And so we're going to take a look at uh, Ephesians. And the difficult part about this podcast now is we're getting into some shorter books that uh, are began on one day and conclude the next. And I don't always have time to get to the microphone. And so uh, we missed Galatians in there, but um, we'll, we'll carry over some of those truths that were spoken of in Galatians and we'll uh, dissect them in other books, and I'll probably miss a few others along the way as well, but uh, hopefully I can keep us uh, moving in the right direction on, on the certain highlights that show up in these books. Uh, but Ephesians has a structure that we should talk about right at uh, the gate, because in Ephesians 1 through 3, we have some really deep orthodoxy. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, we have some really good orthopraxy. And orthodoxy means right teaching, and orthopraxy means right living or practices. And um, many times biblical teachers will use this model. Jesus often would teach a theological truth, and then he would follow it up with how to live because of that theological truth. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He doesn't just dive right in and say, hey, you Ephesians need to do this, 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 and this. But rather he says, listen, this is who God is. This is who you are. This is who Christ is and what Christ has done. This is what he's accomplished. This is what his Holy Spirit has done. And so once you understand these theological truths, then he jumps from that into the way that we should live. So keep that in mind as you read through the book of Ephesians and know that much of what is said in the latter part of the book is grounded and rooted in what was taught about God in the opening statements. Um, One of the overarching themes is unity and love. Uh, Just like the 1 Corinthian church um, or the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians were in need of unity, it seems like most of the churches have that as a primary theme and Ephesians is no exception. Unity and love are essential to uh, this book's teaching. And um, as you look in the opening statements, you'll find a lot of talk about love. Love shows up several times in this small book. Um, In his uh, introduction, he talks about um, the love of God towards the people. Um, Ephesians 2.4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And um, on and on he goes, but then as you get to the back of the book, you start to see that he takes the love of God that was introduced to us in the beginning and uses that as the reason why we should love one another. 
So you get to Ephesians uh, 4, and he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In verse 2, um, verse um, 15, he says, Speak the truth in love. Why? Because God loved us. So now we should love one another. It says in Ephesians 5, 2, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So even there, you have an additional theological uh, treatment. He's already grounded us in God's love in the opening statements of the book, but now he goes even further to say walk in love because of that love that I talked about already. Uh, and so this is just one of the ways that the book is structured. There are other themes that we might see uh, at the beginning of the book that are fleshed out later on in the book as ways to live. Uh, for instance, we're all familiar with the passage on spiritual warfare, but oftentimes we don't catch the connection that is made between the opening chapters of Ephesians and the final chapter of chapter 6, verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he's making a reference to satanic forces, to the demonic realm, when he uses these terms, rulers, authorities, powers. Well, you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and you look in verse 21, and you'll see that he makes a similar statement there in his theological treatment. Before he even tells us to put on the armor, before he ever tells us to stand up against anything, he's already made a statement in the opening chapter that Jesus Christ has been seated in heavenly places, listen to this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he's already making a statement that shows us Jesus has already triumphantly conquered and has been placed above the powers of these demonic rulers of this world. So while in one sense they still exist here on the earth, they still have the ability to tempt and to destroy lives, and they're still at work trying to thwart God's plan, Jesus has already conquered them. Jesus has already been victorious. And so at the end of the book, when he tells you to put on the armor of God, he's telling you to connect yourself to Christ because Christ is already victorious. And the more you connect yourself to Christ, the more victorious you will be um, because we just we share in his victory. And that's really a common theme in the whole book is that what Christ has, we have. He was seated in heavenly places, so we've been seated in heavenly places. We are united to Christ, and that is um, where we get our victory. That is the triumph that we have in the Christian faith, is that what he has, we have. Now, there's some other heavy material here that we should probably at least dabble in a little bit. Now, one of the things is in the opening uh, chapter, chapter 1, uh, we get the idea that we talked about when we were in Romans, um, this idea of predestination. And um, this is, once again, very troubling to some people. And even this morning, I was reading a, a headline from uh, Desiring God, and underneath there were comments, and people just get bent out of shape over this idea of 
election and predestination. And I certainly don't want to cause any rifts or schisms in the church, but at the same time, we don't want to ignore what the Bible says. Uh, and in this opening chapter, it seems to once again reinforce the idea that God has a plan and he is unfolding his plan according to his own purpose and according to his own will. And that involves predestination, that, it, that involves adoption, that involves enlightening people to come to know him. Now, if you missed that uh, episode in Romans, I'll quickly summarize what the debate is here. There are some who believe that the topic of predestination means that you have been chosen by God, not because of something you did good, not because of anything that you had to offer him, but while you were a sinner, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God chose you, and so he enlightened you by the giving of the Holy Spirit, which woke you up from your dead state. And at that point, you repented. Because before he did that, you would have just stayed in your sins. You would have continued to think the way that you always thought about God. Um, but it was when he opened your eyes to the truth, it's at that point you realized your sin. It's at that point that you realized that you needed a Savior. And it's at that point that you repent and turn to God. There are others who hate that idea, and they will always scream free will, free will, and will say that, no, it's when we choose God, that's when he gives us the Holy Spirit. It's really this idea, what did we get first, the Holy Spirit after we chose God, or did the Holy Spirit cause us to choose God? And I seem to lean toward the side that says that you're never going to choose God unless God does something. Uh, he has to act first. He has to to take the scales off of our eyes. He has to soften our hearts. He has to uh, pave the way. He has to illuminate um, the truth in us and draw us to his beauty. Otherwise, we will always see it as something repulsive. And that's what I believe Ephesians 1 and 2 teach us here. And first off, in verse 1, 5, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says he predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will. Not based on what we wanted, but according to the purpose of his will. It goes on in verse 1 through uh, 1, 9, uh, saying uh, that he made known to us the mystery of his his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So once again, we have a reference to his will and his purposes. And then he goes on to further explain that in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. So we've inherited the salvation that he's talking about. We've inherited eternal life. We've received the Spirit not based on what we wanted, but based on his purpose. And then it says, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Furthermore, you get into chapter 2, and he goes on to say, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Once again, we have these demonic forces. That's who the prince of the power of the air is. We were dead. We were enslaved to him. 
And when he uses the language dead, I mean, that there's little hope of coming out of that on your own. Once again, you're a Lazarus in a tomb, and you were incapable of coming back to life. But when Jesus shows up and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, then Lazarus can get up and he can walk. Well, the same thing is being expressed here, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But it says in verse 4 of chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, grace is a free gift. It's something you can't earn. It's something you can't do. It's been given to you. And it says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, there are some theologians who have made strong connection between this chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, and Ezekiel chapter 37. A lot of the same language is used. A lot of the progression is used that matches. And many believe that Paul is referencing Ephesians or Ezekiel chapter 37 as he writes Ephesians 2. It's sort of the, uh, the basis for it. And if you go to Ezekiel 37, you'll find in that chapter that that's where there is a, a pit of dry bones and Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy. And, and when he calls on the dry bones to rise, they flesh forms on them. They become alive again and they are raised up. And he says he's going to raise them out of their graves and seat them in Israel. And here Paul says that we've been raised up to be seated in heavenly places with Christ. Um, and on and on, there are many comparisons there. But once again, if, if that is true, and I'm assuming that there is some truth to that statement, that this is based off Ezekiel 37, then what hope did the dry bones have of getting up by themselves? What hope did they have of putting their faith and trust in God? Um, it was only when God's power came in initially that they had the opportunity to rise up and to respond to the call of God. And so that's, uh, that's my two cents on the predestination issue. We could talk more about that, but I don't want to use up all of our time, and we're getting close to that point. Uh, so I want to move on from there, because one of the things that I think is so important in this book is what he says at the, the latter half of Ephesians chapter 2. And he talks about how the Gentiles were a people who were once alienated, who were once foreigners to the truth that resided in the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers, it says, to the covenant of promise in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. But now it says that Jesus came and those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, uh, for he's our peace and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, some have viewed the dividing wall of hostility to be uh, this idea of maybe the veil that was in the Holy of Holies, and when the veil came down, it no longer separated us from God. But I don't think that's what's being referenced here, because the wall of hostility here, the, that wasn't a, a wall of hostility. That was just a veil that separated the holy from the unholy. But the wall of hostility seems to be this designated area in the temple where Gentiles were allowed to come in, but they were not allowed to pass a certain point, a certain wall. It was the, the hall or the area of the Gentiles 
uh, and they had a special area where women could come so far. M Jewish women could go and proceed beyond the wall of the Gentiles, but they could not proceed any further past a certain point. And then you had an area where Jewish men could go in the temple, a little bit closer to the holy place, but not not all the way because it was the priests and the priests alone who could enter into the holy place and, and provide the sacrifices necessary. But this wall of the Gentiles, this area for the Gentiles is spoken of um, historically in the writings of Flavius Josephus. And this is the wall that I believe is being referenced here. When that wall is broken down, now there can be a a unity between these two races. And that's what happened in Jesus. When Jesus Christ came and he became the temple of God, as God dwelled in him bodily, at that point when he died for the sins of the world and his spirit came upon Jew and Gentile, they are now both united together in the church as the temple of God. And he goes on to say that and express that in very pointed language here. He says in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Well, God's house, that's the temple, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That language of cornerstone is borrowed from several Old Testament passages, and it is a reference to the temple. Um, we see this in Psalm 118. We see this um, in passages of Isaiah, where is a reference to the temple. We even see this language coming out of Ezekiel 37 that I just talked about. It talks about God's dwelling place being with man. Um, and that language is going to be taken up in Revelation when the, when the new Jerusalem comes down and God's dwelling with his people. And that's what's happening in the church, uh, at least in part right now. We have God dwelling with his people because of the Holy Spirit and because of the the sacrifice of Christ, who now says he will never depart from us who believe in him. But he's knit the whole structure together, and it says it grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in verse 21. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we see all these connections with Old Testament passages, um, and we don't have enough time to gather all of those in detail, um, but it, it shows us that when Christ came and he died, he broke down any of these barriers of division and he united us together. And we are supposed to be joined together and grow, it says, into a holy temple. And I think that speaks of numerical growth as the church expands and as new people come into the faith. But I also think it is a reference to our love for one another. As we continue on as a church, we are to grow in our relationships that we can learn to live at peace with one another. We can demonstrate that the Spirit of God is truly at work in our body, and it is causing us to be knit together in ways that we can never have um, been joined together outside of the body of Christ. And so the idea that we are the Lord's temple is in part rooted in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us individually as believers, but it's a more than that, because here this is very communal, as it's talking about us being the temple of the Lord. It, we are the temple of the Lord in the fact that we are joined together with other people. We're like individual stones of the temple that are knit together and, and joined together uh, for the glory of God as we grow in our faith. So think about those things as you read through the book of Ephesians.